0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is uh, September the 14th, 2022, um, and uh, we are talking Middle East today, beginning you know, a Rather different kind of context. Um, we've done some shows on the Middle East in the past, uh, one with the Lebanese uh, journalist uh, Kim khatas uh, on how after 1979 in the Iranian revolution, the whole region, in her words, uh, unraveled. Uh, she writes about that in her magnificent book, Black Wave, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the 40-year rivalry of unraveled culture, religion, and collective memory in the Middle East. Um, we've done some narrower shows. We did one with the Palestinian uh, writer Hala Alyal. Uh, she's a novelist on the displacement of the Palestinian experience. Uh, she articulates that in her novel, The Arsonist mm. City. We've also done some stuff on innovation and youth in the Middle East, one with my friend Chris Schroeder, a Startup Rising, the entrepreneur, Entrepreneurial Revolution, remaking the Middle East. Um, we've done some more political stuff. Uh, Ece Temelkuren, who participated uh, on lots of levels, the Turkish writer, journalist in the Arab Spring on how to institutionalize solidarity in a post-Arab Spring, Arab Spring, I guess. She has a new book out, Together, 10 Choices for a Better Now. We're talking about an awakening, a new kind of, I guess, Middle Eastern or Arab awakening today, but in a very different context with my guest, Mark Levine. uh, He has a new book out, We'll Play Till We Die, Journeys Across a Decade of Revolutionary Music in in the Muslim World. It's a very original book, a very original take, and he's a very original guy. He's joining us from UC Irvine, where he teaches Mark. Uh, Welcome. Tell me about this book, Um, World Play Till We Die. It has a great title. Where's the title from?
1: Well, the title actually came to me. I was standing on the shore of the Mediterranean in Port Said um with a uh, member of the group tambora El tambora which is kind of traditional egyptian uh, nile delta folklore group really amazing group and we've known each other since before the uprising of january 25th 2011 and it was just after a long gig he had done with his group which is based there as well as in cairo and it was i don't know must have been 1:30 or 2 a.m And we were standing there and I just we were speaking in Arabic and I just asked him how long, you know, how long do you think you can do this? Uh, How long can you keep doing this? Because he's about 70, a little bit over 70. And he said, you know, we'll play till we die. And um, as soon as he said those words, I said, well, I have to get that tattooed on me if you don't mind. And he laughed and said, yes, sure. Uh, I still haven't done that particular tattoo, but it's coming now that the book's coming out. And you know it just symbolized so much because this, this gentleman Zakaria Ibrahim has been in jail uh, for being a student activist. He has been singing songs against occupation and oppression for decades since the '50s, really. Because uh, you know, Suez and the Nile. Delta has been the forefront of resistance against colonialism, against the so-called tripartite aggression in 56, against Israeli uh, occupation in 1967, against various government policies all the way down to the present day. And the group Tambora was one of the most important uh, cultural forces in Tahrir Square during the uprising. So for him to say that, it really struck me as really capturing what every musician, whether they were 17 or 70, feels across the region when they think about the role of music in their lives and in their societies
0: this isn't your first book you wrote uh, one called heavy metal islam that got a nice review in the new york times they were describing you uh you're a, a long-haired jewish rock guitarist whose bio list gigs with mick jagger and dr john how did you get into studying this stuff
1: mark Yeah, it's a it's really interesting question. You know, I started off at a conservatory. I left uh, Mason Gross Conservatory, which was part of Rutgers University, uh, way back in 1985, I guess. And uh, after a year, I left to go on tour with a well-known Texas blues uh, blues guitarist, and that didn't work out. One of my first. one of my first lessons in the music industry, don't don't leave your day job or your school, assuming you're going to go on a big world tour just because the musician says you will. Um, but that started me sort of just playing music. I wound up, you know, professionally wound up going to Europe for a year or so, came back. Was gigging, but decided I I was missing. I always loved reading. I was always into philosophy and history and religion. So when I came back to New York, I went to Hunter College and I enrolled in the religion program and the Hebrew and Judaic studies program because I. Um, and just started reading and studying, and just the region, the Middle East, just became more and more fascinating. Uh, I also loved the music. I guess as a kid, my favorite band by 100 Miles was Led Zeppelin, and of course they-, they... We did a show, actually, on Led Zeppelin. Oh, okay. You. Really? Yeah.
0: I can't remember his name. Ah,
1: Well, next one you do, you should have me. <laughs> um, and, you know, their music, and I don't just mean Kashmir, but everything from friends to all the way to no quarter to all to Jimmy Page's soloing, everything was steeped in this kind of Islamic context. Um, you could hear it in the sounds of soloing, in the rhythms. Of course, they spent time in Morocco. They later on spent time in India and then in Pakistan and other places as musicians. So the idea, So, I was already primed to love Middle Eastern and North African music. And I kind of, um, and I understood intuitively its relationship to rock and roll and to the blues because clearly the blues is based on Uh, this, uh, the kinds of scales or modes that come out of uh, the Muslim world and come out of Muslim North Africa and went to Europe through the Islamic world. So there was already a natural tendency for me to be interested in the region, and I also started working there as a human rights activist with Amnesty International. And as I got more and more into it, I just started merging together, both studying. Uh, about the region and then playing music that in some ways was leaning towards the region. And while I was working as a professional musician in New York, I was also in grad school at NYU. And, you know, eventually I went to Palestine, Israel for a year to do my dissertation research. While I was there, I was studying with some amazing musicians to really get deeper into the music, studying oud and just theory. And when I came back, I continued to study and then started working with Middle Eastern artists. So that's kind of the way my love of the music uh, joined together with my work as a musician and as an emerging scholar to, to start thinking about how the music, how music in general could reflect society. And beyond that, it was just also my, I was, you know, from early on in my graduate studies, I became a fan of the Frankfurt School and especially Adorno's writings on music. So
0: I thought the Frankfurt School was a rock band, Mark, wasn't it?
1: Uh, they might have been, yeah, but I think the uh, author was a little bit more to my taste. And, and
0: Marcuse, or, was it Adorno or Marcuse who played the uh, who was the front guy on that
1: band? <laughs> I think Marcuse was probably the front man. You would not want Adorno as your front man. Although Maybe.
0: Adorno wrote some pretty nasty things about black music. He
1: wrote it? some pretty nasty things about everything and everyone. And, um, you know, he was a very strange guy. He He, on the one hand, wrote some negative things, but it wasn't just about jazz. He wrote it about rock and roll. He wrote it about modern, contem- most non-contemporary atonal classical music. Um, he also was, uh, you know, was Angela Davis's uh, professor and wrote and, and, you know, loved Angela Davis. And uh, so it wasn't his, his reaction against jazz had nothing to do with race. It had to do with, in his view, whether or not jazz could prove to be a liberatory yeah. music.
0: Mark, it's interesting you raised Led Zeppelin. I have to admit, Led Zeppelin never interested me because they don't seem to be saying anything. I'm sure I'm wrong, but they, to me, anyway. You know, I'm uh, a guitar player. So, no, this, no you say when something
1: really finish. funny because I never, I never, the only words in the whole world, I, the only song in the whole world I know the words to is Stairway to Heaven. And that's just because it was on the album, inside the album. For me, it was all about the music and Robert Plant's right, voice. Now, with an I, I take
0: that, but let, let me finish my point. Yeah. So, um, uh, you mentioned the blues, of course, and the blues, part in part of, at least, uh, reflect the suffering of a people, African American people. Uh, the politics of the blues is complicated and important. Um, sure. When you compare the suffering of the African American experience and its impact on the blues or its creation of the blues. How, how would you compare that to the music you've studied in the Middle East, particularly in We'll Play Till We Die? How political is this music?
1: Well, there's two different ways it's political. First of all, the music that I have w- looked at across the region and really, you know, we start in Morocco in both books and Heavy Metal Islam, which covers roughly the early 2000s till I finished writing it in 2008 and then we'll play till we die literally picks up the day after and continues until this year. So it's really together. The two books cover almost a 20 year period, uh, often looking at the same musicians and the same bands as they've gone from being teenagers or 20 something young musicians to being, you know, in their thirties and forties. Um, and you know, on the one hand, the music they do, especially metal is inherently political, and also hip-hop. As one of the founders of the Moroccan metal scene put it to me, we play heavy metal because our lives are heavy metal, because our lives feel as difficult and as painful as the kind of extreme metal that we love uh, sounds. And this is not new. Tony Iommi, the lead guitarist of Black Sabbath, said, you know, the sound of Black Sabbath, you know, born in the deindustrializing north of of England in the late 60s, basically reflected the quote-unquote shit of life of living as a working class person in Northern England in the late 60s. So metal has always, from its origins there in in the north of England, has always reflected the kind of struggles and sufferings of marginalized people. And so it's not at all surprising that if you go across the Middle East and North Africa, and also Latin America for that matter, and Southeast Asia, that that metal would appeal to people who feel marginalized. People who need to have a kind of cathartic experience, either through performing or listening to the music. So there's the same kind of roots, and there's also something quite similar to the blues in a way, because we all know that, especially the lyrics of the blues, a lot of times they would be using coded language, language that might refer to their to a lover, to actually refer to a white boss that they couldn't uh, speak about directly or risk. Who knows what kind of violence? Well, quite similarly, in the Middle East and North Africa, one of the reasons that metal filled the role that it did is because first of all most people couldn't understand what people are singing when they're singing in brutal brutal the kind of brutal harsh someone calls it cookie monster sounding vocals that you know extreme metal uh vocalists tend to use you can't understand it if you don't really know the genre and you certainly can't understand it if you don't know english so it was a way for them to express things even you know through language that would only be available to the in group that could be highly critical of, if not directly of a regime, of the larger situation that they were living in. And similarly, hip-hop, you know, in the same way, emerges in the, and punk, which is also popular, especially in Southeast Asia and, and some other countries in, in the Middle East. Uh, um, these these genres emerge in precisely these areas that are being partially impacted by neoliberal reforms, by police crackdowns, by ongoing or increasing oppression, and by people who, and especially by war. Uh, so many of the groups, Iran and Iraq and Lebanon and Palestine, uh, even in Libya, you speak to musicians and they talk about how this music literally saved their lives in times of of war, that putting on the music would drown out the sound of bombs and mortars and machine guns. So it has an extremely cathartic effect. But the other thing that's really important, and similar to the blues in some ways, is that it becomes the core of a kind of do-it-yourself economy. Of empowering people. So it's not just a catharsis. It's a method of empowering them and giving them skills that they could use later on in their lives, especially in the Middle East when things start to become political, when space begins to open up. The, the skills they learned having to do underground DIY music scenes were very transferable to doing underground DIY politics.
0: So, Mark, um, what was the role of music and the kind of music you write about and cover in the Arab Spring? And, and, and how has the failure of the Arab Spring uh, impacted that music scene, both in terms of the scene itself and the kind of music now that's popular?
1: Well, first of all, I, don't, I think a lot. most people don't like to even use the term Arab Spring anymore, even then course it was winter when it started but the idea of a spring which comes out of the prog well, we yeah no I, I get it but the point is that it was the it was for those of us who were there in the region at the time even in the giddy early days it was clear that this was going to be a lot harder than even people were there imagined and i can just give you one example that would tie into the music uh someone who became a dear friend of mine in egypt one of the original metalheads in the scene, his name was Alaa Abdel Fattah. Uh, his father was a famous human rights activist. He's now in jail on the 170th day of his hunger strike. He's been in jail most of the last decade. He, he was one of the first activists, young internet activists and coders in the Arab world. And we happened to meet up the day, the, the night, or the night after that Mubarak was kicked out. Um, in 2011 and in, in Cairo and I was at a meeting with him and other young activists and they were trying to figure out what to do and the act of, whether they should press the military to allow them to force a civilian transition as it happened in Tunisia or allow the military to take over and run the transition period and they knew that if they pushed that most Egyptians would not support. continuing the revolution for weeks and weeks, because, you know, 40% of the country lives on $2 a day or less, and they simply couldn't survive weeks more of of a completely closed down economy. So they realized they had to allow the military to take over, uh, even though they all knew that this was probably not going to end well. And I think that's kind of that ambivalent, because they knew the military couldn't be trusted, and no one in their right mind imagined Uh, at least among these activists, that the military was going to allow a nice civilian transition and a democratic government to take over and every, you know, Bob's your uncle, as they say. They knew that wasn't going to happen, but they also knew there wasn't much they could do to stop this at this point. And I think that music always becomes... That, that kind of reflects the role the music played. It was a music that reflected frustrations. In some ways, it also reflected the dreams, if not the lyrics or the sound itself. The fact that they could create these scenes, that they could continue to develop them, even under a repressive dictatorship, showed that there was some kind of hope for the future. And the fact that through these new technologies at that point, like new media and the internet, a band you know that had hardly any money could record a song on their home computer, put it up on the internet, and get thousands and thousands of views all over the world, all without any money changing hands at any point. This kind of new mode of, of creating, distributing, and consuming music was, you know, really heralded a new way of producing and distributing and consuming culture and ideas and even politics. So there was an inherent link between the music and the emergence of kind of the political subjectivities and ideas and ways of doing things of this generation. But they also knew it was coming up against a brutal brutal regimes across the region that even if they lost the first round, you know, were quite deeply entrenched in society and would continue to fight back until they until they got clawed back most of their power. So the music, that ambivalence in metal and even in the hip-hop scenes there, especially in the more extreme uh hip-hop scenes gangster rap the kind of sound that we would uh, in the in the us or europe would you know think sounds like west coast gangster rap or public enemy or 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 any of the nwa any of the more political groups that kind of sound reflected both the dream you know the power of the music the power of this new generation but also that dissonance that distortion that was at the heart of their societies and at the heart of the way they were being ruled, that wasn't gonna end anytime soon. So when all the uprisings, more or less outside of Tunisia failed, or were co-opted, the music continued on. And when the government started cracking down on artists and jailing artists, or more, more of the time, artists had to go into exile in order to not be jailed or even worse, the music continued but reverted more to an underground form again. So, it kind of the political music went back into the underground. And new forms of music emerged that uh, were able to express politics in different ways. The epitome of that will be Mahaganat music in Egypt, which emerges before the uprisings, but becomes hugely popular in the years after the uh, January 25th yeah, uprising.
0: Uh, and for people, um yeah. look up the Magarana in, uh, on, on, um, on, on Wikipedia, it, according to Wikipedia, it's a combination of popular Egyptian shabby music played at weddings and uh, EDM and, and hip-hop. What about the role, um, Mark, of, um, uh, of, of new media? You mentioned uh, mm-hmm. technology having a role. We did a show recently on YouTube. Uh, like, comment, subscribe. I know YouTube is very influential. Uh, Facebook and social media as well as the metaverse is that having an impact is it changing the nature of music in the Middle East today well absolutely
1: I mean it's changing music everywhere because uh, YouTube especially became I mean now it's Spotify but YouTube before that became a way for you know for people to create, distribute, and consume culture outside the commodity chain, but also outside of the ability of of governments to control how the music was produced, how it was circulated, and how it was accessed. And of course, some governments, you know, ultimately would just you know block YouTube. That's happened in many countries, where they block other uh, other. Other outlets that they felt were like Facebook, whenever they felt they were they were threatening the regime or there was too much subversive content on it. But th- yeah, the, these outlets were initially quite powerful because they because they were a space of freedom that the governments didn't know how to control, or the only way they can control it was with a really blunt in, in, uh, instrument like closing down the entire internet or censoring, you know, closing down a site that hundreds of millions of people use, and therefore it would be very difficult. The backlash against closing it down would be pretty fierce. What eventually happens, though, is as the governments reclaim their footing, they just start to, instead of censoring Facebook or YouTube, they just start arresting artists who use it to, to put out subversive uh, content. So in, in Egypt, in, uh, in, in Morocco, in so many countries, artists were arrested because of the music that was put up, especially on YouTube. So, you know, on the one hand, it does create a, a, a space, a virtual space, you know, e- even if you can't gather in, in a physical space because you'd all be arrested, you can gather in a virtual space. Uh, but ultimately, the governments realize, well, we can't arrest everyone who views that content, but we can arrest... The person who made the content so you've seen uh, I, I have several friends in egypt especially but also in morocco in bahrain and other countries that have been arrested and spent a lot of time in prison because of content that was posted on uh on you know either facebook or um or twitter or you know music for, for, video right.
0: so, so mark for, for viewers and listeners who, who are interested in following up with the music i know you've got a uh, a Spotify list will play yeah. till We Die, uh, yeah. which you feature a number of different songs. Is that one way to start to access your... Yeah, I think
1: that, that would be the easiest way. I'm putting together also, you know, there are some, some of the key musical moments are moments that were recorded live, like in Tahrir Square or on Bourguiba Boulevard in Tunisia, or on the street in near Gezi Park in Turkey, and so people would record videos and put them on YouTube, and they would then go viral. Obviously, those couldn't be on the Spotify stream. So I'm I'm finishing up a YouTube. Uh, were you YouTube-
0: uh, Were you at Gezi Square? Were you uh, on the street then?
1: I was not on. I was not in Gezi during the protest, but I was there before and after the protest. lasted, you know, not for a very long time. They lasted only throughout parts of the summer Uh, in early fall, I guess, in 2013. But I knew many of the artists who were participating in it, Um, not just metal artists, but also some pop artists, uh, people I knew from my first book, from Heavy Metal Islam, that talked about this, who were featured in the book, (coughs) and also some artists who became more well-known afterwards, and uh, many of whom had to leave the country once once their participation was clear. His music
0: these days, Mark... um we have a map of the Middle East, is it sort of canary in the coal mine in terms of making sense of what's happening in the region? Uh, is, um, is the health or lack of health of a, of an underground music scene a reflection of its political energy, perhaps unrest?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think to some degree, it certainly was in the early mid 2000s, because they were truly underground, they were not heavily, heavily policed by, I mean, there were things, what what we call satanic metal scares, similar to what was happening in the US, except here people were being arrested, they were being threatened with execution in Egypt, and other, they were being prosecuted in places like Morocco and Iran and uh, Lebanon. For uh, for just for being metalheads, for example. It never really happened with hip hop. Was this the uh, emo
0: killings or is that something? Well, about- the emo
1: killings in Iraq were a separate thing that happened in, in the mid-2010s, uh, early mid-2010s. When uh, Iraq, which is really just such a fascinating and under understudied studied country because most people don't want to go there sadly because they think it's so violent but it's actually an amazing place baghdad is one of the great cities of the world and they have uh, you know really interesting music scenes there, are really interesting but there were a lot of kids especially young middle class or poor to working class kids who were basically taking on the emo identity and look at least and and the visual marker for that was haircuts and certain kinds of clothing, and these haircuts—funnily enough—that they, if they were in Palestine or other places, they wouldn't bat an eye. No one would really look at them strange. But in the context of Iraq, which at that point was just starting to, uh, just starting to ramp down from a decade of intense violence since the U.S. occupation, these kids became uh, a symbol of Western decadence to some violent. Conservative people, and there was this spate of killings of so called emo fans. Now, the ironic thing is, a large share of the people who were killed were not necessarily emo fans. They just happened to have a haircut that was popular at the time, a kind of slick back hair that was somewhat effeminate uh, from a certain perspective, and were wearing clothes that seemed to suggest being effeminate. Mm-hmm. And for some of these, uh, you know, hardcore jihadis or religious you know, fanatics, that would be enough to to want to target them as a way of saying the public space in this city does not allow for any any ex- exhibition of masculinity that it doesn't conform. Uh, to does it Does this
0: music revolution and the stuff you covered? Does it does it um, sort of echo or parallel sexual identity and sexual unrest?
1: I mean, in some ways, there's certainly spaces in the music scenes for non-normative sexual identities that, um, openly non-normative sexual identities that you don't see elsewhere. So, for example, one of the most famous rock groups, not a metal group, uh, but a rock group in the entire region was the Lebanese band Mashrulela, which just... um, which just uh, broke up. Actually, they announced they were finally disbanding after, I don't know, a, de- uh, a decade or so. And they became very famous because uh, several of the members, or at least one of the members, basically came out as gay openly. And so they became a beacon for gay you know, and LGBTQ plus youth all across the region. And so that was really important. Unfortunately, there were huge backlash against that. So for example, in one famous case uh, in Egypt, they performed in Egypt, which. Um, And at the concert, a young woman who was an activist held up a pride flag and she was subsequently arrested and horrifically mistreated and ultimately and imprisoned and ultimately escaped uh, to Canada. But she was so traumatized by what had happened to her that she committed suicide. Sarah Higazi was her name. Really beautiful person, and so you can see how. And that's really a great example of how music can open up incredible spaces. But if the spaces, if if the if these spaces are too threatening to existing social and political structures, the crackdown can be, you know, brutal, and it could lead to things like suicide, uh, you know, uh, long-term imprisonment, exile. So it's really it depends. Some of you want to look at it half full or half empty glass in terms of how music reflects the experiences of young people and what it affords them in the way of greater freedom, if only personal freedom.
0: Uh, Mark, final question. Uh, We had a show with my old friend John Taplin, who was Dylan's manager in the 60s. Mm -hmm. He has a new memoir out, which he called The Magic Years, scenes from a rock and roll life from the 60s. Are these The Magic Years, do you think, of... Middle Eastern popular music, do you think in 20, 30 years, people will look back with the kind of nostalgia that Taplin articulates towards the 1960s?
1: You know, I think think that idea that 60s were magic years, I love the 60s, even though I'm a generation after, that's where I found my love, you know, through the music of the 60s and then those bands that carried over into the 70s. So I appreciate that sentiment. And of course, the overt political relationship between, I mean, the overt relationship between music and politics, at least some musicians and politics, whether it was black American music or rock and roll, was amazing. But let's remember, you know, incredible music and incredibly political music like punk and hip hop emerge. Long, you know, a decade after the 60s and in many ways in reaction against the 60s. So if you only, say, if you try to kind of glorify the 60s, what are you losing about what happens to politics later, right? And what happens to the relation between politics and music with punk, with hip hop, with uh, with hardcore, with other forms of music, right? So I think in the same way in the Middle East, if I had to pick, you know, what's the, what are the years where my favorite music in the region of the kind of musicians I work with came out? I would say it was the first decade of the century, of this century, the 2000s. There were a lot of amazing first-generation metal bands that were doing just pioneering stuff. The rise of Arab hip-hop and then Persian hip-hop, some of the best hip-hop ever produced came out of the Middle East came out of places like Iran, just spectacular music with such incredible wordplay, given how important poetry is in Arabic and Persian, it's not surprising that that would be very amenable to hip-hop. So... um, so yeah, a lot that becomes really important. But then here, this generation, this this last decade of the the second decade has Mahraganar. It has the rise of EDM in the region, especially uh, experimental experimental electronic music. Just incredible stuff happening. And then the last few in the last few years now, you have new generation of musicians. So I think each decade in the last, you know, the the first decade, the second decade, and this new decade has its own. Artists which are groundbreaking and not just pushing their own music ahead, they're actually at the avant-garde of music globally, right? And because the Middle East and North Africa is so tied into other regions like the rest of Africa, like India, like Southeast Asia, you have ties to other forms of globalizing music through this music that most so-called Western music, Euro-American music, doesn't ever touch. So it also becomes a conduit for bringing those sounds Back to uh, Euro American music. And that's, of course, how music has always functioned, right? I mean, you know, the rise of rock and roll, Dick Dale, the surf sound. Dick Dale was a Lebanese guy, right? His name was Richard Mansour, the founder, that godfather of heavy metal guitar, learned to play guitar as playing oud in his family's Lebanese restaurant. That's why he developed that rapid picking sound that we know as the surf guitar sound. So, and the the, the, the famous metal chords, the minor thirds or the minor seconds, all, all these sounds that define metal come out of modes that come right from the Muslim world. So from the heart of the heart of all this music comes from elsewhere. So it's always been a giant circle and I think that what we have today is just a new generation figuring out how to make one more revolution uh, while they still can before they you know need to grow up and have kids and move on to the next phase of their lives. And that's the way music always is everywhere. So in that sense I think it's I would say that we don't want to fetishize or, you know, idolize one decade as being the only the decade where it all worked because it was never quite as, you know, political as people imagine. And there was always stuff happening afterwards that was also political that we tend not to recognize.
0: Yeah, well, that's it. We'll play till we die. Journeys across a decade of revolutionary music in the Muslim world. Congratulations on the new
1: book. Thank Ma- you so much. Uh, pleasure one, to be here. One
0: other uh, recommendation of uh, reading or, or music. What else would you recommend our viewers listen? To?
1: Wow. Well, if they're looking for uh, for books to read. Um, uh, wow. Well, uh, certainly a, a good friend of mine, Hisham Aidi's book, uh, Rebel Music, uh, which came out not long after M- Heavy Metal Islam, but really ha- any of his books that deal with music. Um, gosh, and uh, you know, if you look at the bibliography of my book, I tried to list every book that would be relevant in English, but also some in Arabic right. and French. Well, you have to get so, the book. Congratulations yeah. on the book. Thank Mark. you so much. Good to be here.